Introducing MyHoover. Through this new feature, you can now more easily follow the work of your favorite fellows and policy topics. Customize your newsfeed, manage newsletter subscriptions, and receive notifications when your favorite publications, broadcasts, and podcasts go live. Bookmark articles, essays, and multimedia for later viewing. Take the step to create a MyHoover account now and transform the way in which you acquire this valuable knowledge. Hi, this is Bill Whalen, the host of Goodfellows. Thanks for listening to the audio version of the show, but we wanted to let you know that Goodfellows is primarily a video production, and you're missing a lot of extra features by only listening to our show. Give it a look by going to hoover.org forward slash goodfellows to see what you're missing. Thanks. Letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Wednesday, January 24th, 2024, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and political concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today, but enough about me. You're not here to watch me. You're tuning in to watch the stars of our show, our three uh, colleagues of mine who we call the Goodfellows. That would include the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, Geostrategist and former Presidential National Security Advisor, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. So guys, at the end of the last show, we told our viewers that we wanted questions from them and make this a mailbag show. And so indeed, that's what we're doing today. I'd like to thank everybody who bothered to write in. If we don't get your question in this show, please don't take it personally. We received over 100 questions, simply not enough time to get all of them today. I would like to ask a favor, and that's to keep sending us questions because we want to include uh, questions in our lightning round in future shows and just send it to the same address as before, hoover.org forward slash askgoodfellows, and I'll make the pitch at the end of the show too. So gentlemen, if you're ready, on with the show, and let's do a few group questions. The first one from Edward in New Jersey who writes, are the forces of tradition, if not of conservatism, starting to rally as seen in Pennsylvania Governor Shapiro's opposition to efforts to remove William Penn's statue from Philly's Welcome Park, Australian PM Albanese's postponement of his promised referendum on the monarchy? Not an organized resistance, but at least a shift in mood from berating to appreciating what our Western heritage has to offer. If so, what are the implications for the teaching of and the use of our Western social, political and cultural inheritance in the near term? Neil, is the pendulum swinging? I think the first signs of uh, a change are there, but I, I don't think it's a pendulum. Uh, certainly from the vantage point of academia, it's felt more like a ski slope recently. Uh, but even the steepest ski slope finally uh, levels out. Now, I, I do sense that in the great backlash we've seen against wokeism in the academy since October 7th, there is something uh, healthy going on. Of course, the problem for conservatives is that in an election year, when the choice is essentially a very partisan one, and it's not clear that conservatism has a real home, at least in certain sections of the Republican Party, it's not an easy time to consolidate this change in mood. Uh, but I think it's good to ask the question, not just about the US, but about the Anglosphere as a whole. Because I, I do think there is a shift happening. The trouble is translating it into politics. In Britain, it's almost certain there'll be a Labour government soon. That is not going to be good for conservatism, because for sure, Labour is more woke than the conservatives. Mm -hmm. John? Um, yeah, uh, it's it's more a battle that's turning rather than a pendulum. Uh, 
these things are hard. I would not put it as a turn to conservatism and Western heritage and so forth, as much as just the outbreak of common sense. Uh, the emperor has no clothes. There's a basic core of, of America that has some basic common sense. Uh, and the slight ability now to speak out. The problem was when you said the emperor is naked in the past, you immediately get shamed. Hey, you can actually start to say it and fight it. So it's, it's the beginning. It's There's a light at the end of the tunnel, but nothing as, as advanced uh, and, and optimistic as our questioner had in mind. H.R., you're a Philadelphia guy. Were you shocked to see that uh, Billy Penn was being taken away? No, I mean, I mean, so, somebody who really sparked the whole movement for religious freedom, and and you know, so I, I, I just think, okay, um, it, it, John, John said it, it, it. The emperor does have no clothes, you know. I was thinking the same thing, you know. And but I do want to say, Bill, we do tune in to see you too. You know, you're my daughter's favorite, you know, on, on Goodfellas. You know, they keep saying, Bill, that guy, Bill, is so nice, and you really are a nice guy, Bill. Thank you, and 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 do a great job on this on the show. Hey, but I think it is. I think it's the beginning. You know, uh, Neil and and John, we all talked about, gosh, maybe a couple of years ago now, about how people were afraid to to call out, you know, ESG or DEI because immediately get labeled, okay, you're you're a racist. I think now enough people have pointed out, you know, from the from the sidelines of the parade, hey, the emperor's naked, and 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 I think that that's going to have a cascading effect. I the real the real test, Bill, I think is going to be okay. What, how does the younger generation react to this? And they've been fed th this doctrine uh, in, in the academy and, and maybe in the secondary school as well. And I, I hope that more and more young people are questioning this kind of warped uh, orthodoxy. Okay, we have a question from Michael in Plymouth, Massachusetts, who writes, I am a high school history teacher. Please recommend both contemporary serious publications that connect contemporary issues with historical antecedents that are accessible to the average reader at a high school level. Also, any primary source documents from American modern world history that would be considered fundamental? Well, that's a straightforward one, which I'll I'll take. Uh, the, the applied history movement is still in its infancy. And by that, I mean the effort by a new generation of historians to apply lessons of history to contemporary problems. Uh, and that's deeply out of fashion in most history departments. So you have to look elsewhere for that material. Uh, and I recommend the Hoover History Working Group, which I chair, uh, which has been publishing uh, uh, its working papers in applied history, as well as holding uh, seminars. And uh, at the Belfer Center at Harvard, uh, there's uh, an applied history uh, group too. And uh, they do a good job on their website of bringing together articles that are applied history articles. And often those are relatively short and therefore very accessible. So those are your two centers for applied history. Um, as for uh, documents, um, you know, one of the things about being an immigrant is you have to study up a bit uh, in order to pass the citizenship test. And there's nothing quite like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to focus the mind on what distinguishes the American Republic for other experiments in democratic governance. So start there. And once you've done that, and of course, everybody should have by now, but if they haven't, uh, they should. Then I really recommend an outstanding book by the British historian Jonathan Clark, J.C.D. Clark, called The Language of Liberty, which highlights all kinds of far less well-known documents about uh, the origins of uh, the United States. HR, you're a historian. What do you think? Hey, well, you know, I, I, you know the writing, writing of Battlegrounds was for me a continuation of my self-education. And so in the back of that book, there's an extended reading list for each of the sections 
of the book. So I, I would just ask if, if you have time, please look at, at that recommended reading list for each of those topics. But on, on primary uh, sources, I think, well, th it's a great teacher who wrote that question because I think whenever you teach a lesson, you should have maybe some secondary source essays that are opposed to one another in terms of their interpretation of history, but then also have primary source documents. Uh, there are companion volumes for, the, I think, the most important experiences and events in history that you can find uh, quite readily. You can always consult an archivist. I mean, I think the archivists at the National Archives are phenomenal people, and they will help you for specific documents. But also there's the, the, the series, The Foreign Relations of the United States, the Fruce series, which has great primary documents in it as well. Uh, and if you're teaching the Civil War, there's a two volume, uh, two two volumes of just primary documents from from the Civil War, for example. But anyway, I think I think the, the teacher who wrote that is a great teacher, you know. And and if you're teaching about China, for example, go to Frank Decoder's five volumes and look at and, and look at the primary source uh, material that he quotes at length as well. I just want to also cheer the primary source thing. My father was a historian and taught an undergraduate class entirely out of primary source. Now you can't always do it. You have, you have to read history and good history like Neil's and HR's is always worth reading. But the habit of go check the actual source is one that we have lost in a lot of public debate. And I thought it was very great. Now, as long as you're in Plymouth, Massachusetts, I got some recommendations. Of course, William Bradford's History of the Plymouth Plantation is a primary source and worth reading. And I forget the author, but the King Philip's War history I read recently, uh, I thought was uh, just just smashing. And I'll put in a plug. Um, uh, Neil works for, a, a, has, has helped put together a website, Reclaiming History, what is it in, in the UK? On uh, and and it's in it's in bits, so you get you get little bits of history here and there. But um, uh, uh, you know, like like uh, uh, they'll go to art museums and and deconstruct the uh, new crazy uh, um, uh, posters that you see next to every piece of art. What's the right website, Neil? Uh, history reclaimed? Is that it? That's right. That's the name of it. And this is an attempt by British historians. Uh, like my good friend at Cambridge, David Abalafia, to push back against uh, woke uh, pseudo-history, which is uh, a plague in museums uh, and other historical sites, and not only in the UK. Hey, just one other, one other, one quick plug for the Hoover Archive, which is phenomenal, by the way. And uh, and so if you're if you're in the neighborhood, you know, stop by the the Hoover Tower, look at the rotating display through the uh, through the Hoover Archives. And you know, if if you're if you're a professor, an instructor, and you have time, come visit, meet our amazing archivists, and and maybe develop your next syllabus uh, as you go through some of the primary materials here. We'll make sure to include links to history reclaimed and these other sites that we're mentioning. Uh, gentlemen, a question from Hugo in The Hague. He writes, hey there, good fellows. In The War of the World, Neil argues that before 1914, many people believed that a war between European powers would come at too great a cost and therefore it would never actually happen. In the first episode of 2024, Neil says that World War III with China wouldn't happen because the consequences would be too great. Are we at a point now where that rationale is what leads us to World War III because all sides don't believe it will actually happen? Neil? Well, I'm reminded of uh, of Henry Kissinger's analysis of World War One and World War Two having very different antecedents. Uh, the the one, in a sense, uh, the result of a colossal series of miscalculations, uh, and the other somehow uh, visible from many years before, with a certain inevitability to it. Ultimately, the result of a, a failure of of deterrence. Uh, and I think when I when I argue that there is a kind of financial version of mutually assured destruction today. Uh, I, I take some heart from that. Notice we discussed it before. 
but the Taiwanese election did not produce a Taiwan crisis, even although the candidate that Beijing did not like won. And and the reason for that, I think, has to be the incredible mess that the Chinese economy is in right now. And if you don't believe me, take a look at the Chinese stock market, uh, which is now in such dire straits that the government is having to devise methods to to prop it up. So economics there, even uh, before a crisis, has has acted as a constraint on Xi Jinping. That's the good news. The bad news is that Norman Angel thought that that would constrain the great powers before 1914. That's the central theme of the book, The Great Illusion, which was published just a few years before the war broke out. So even although both sides have strong economic reasons not to end up in a conflict, it could still happen. And I think the issue that that I'm preoccupied with is is deterrence and why we've forgotten its key rules. I think this administration has been extraordinarily bad at deterrence. Uh, It certainly didn't deter Vladimir Putin in 2022. I don't think it's deterring Iran right now. It can't even deter the Houthis uh, who appear able to defy the might of the United States and entirely disrupt uh, world trade uh, by hitting shipping in, in the Red Sea. So this lack of deterrence is, I think, a real concern because at some point, uh, not this year perhaps, but at some point this decade, one feels sure that a confrontation over Taiwan will happen. And maybe because the Chinese economy is in such a mess, Xi Jinping wouldn't be the first leader who, looking at a, an economic crisis at home, decided that the best source of legitimacy would be a foreign war. Mm-hmm. HR. Hey, I, I just I, I would just agree with Neil on that analysis. I, I think that uh, you know what happens next in the Middle East, what happens in connection with continued support for Ukraine, will have big implications on whether or not Xi Jinping uh, makes a decision to to act on his threats toward Taiwan uh, or to become more aggressive in the South China Sea and precipitate you know maybe a a, a, a war, you know, another theater of war in these connected wars that we're that we're experiencing today. Mm-hmm. I, I would add, um, so this idea that uh, we won't go to war because it'll implode our economy. Well, in both First and Second World Wars, both sides underestimated uh, just how bad it would be. Everyone thought wars would be over soon. Uh, Hitler also, mis- there was a miscalculation there. He didn't think we would fight back, He thought, uh, which we eventually did. Um, <clears throat> so you are deterred from war other because you think the other side will fight back or because you think your own economy will crater. And, and I don't. I think both sides are a little bit uh, under illusions about how robust their economies would be uh, in a war. I think China impossibly doesn't care, as, as Neil pointed out, the same way North Korea doesn't care if its economy goes down. Um, uh, and the US, I don't think, is clear about how dependent we are on China. You see um, all the desire to, uh, to bring everything back. I ran into an interesting number. Uh, U.S. produces 0.2% of the world's shipping. China produces 50%. We don't know how to build stuff anymore in the U.S. Uh, and so I, I think we are not at all clear on how disastrous uh, a war, which would stop all of global trade really in the, in the East, would be for the U.S. economy. So I, you can clearly see where we're not being deterred by that fear, and I don't think China is either. You need the, the means to fight and the will to fight. Uh, Neil was pointing out it doesn't look like we have the will to deter. And uh, it doesn't look like the fear of economic implosion is is going to slow this one down any more than it did the last couple. 
Let's stay with China. And this question from Orvin in Ottawa, Canada, who writes, if China's economic and population growth slow in the coming decades, is it possible that India's growth will strengthen the West efforts to contain China, or will India have to pick a side between the West and the new axis of evil? Well, of course, we have to pick sides. I'll, I'll take the first part. Uh, um, economic uh, population growth, uh, India still has population, but India needs to choose to grow economically. India is still a ridiculously poor country. And I say ridiculously because, uh, uh, you know, modest reforms should lead India to have the kind of GDP per capita China has at least uh, and start growing and, and be uh, a serious country. That That's the issue, really. Not so much the number of people you have, but how productive each of those uh, people can be. Uh, do you have to pick a side? Well, that depends on whether over decades we're still having the new access of evil or whether uh, something else has come about it. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Neil HR, anything you'd like to add? Yeah. I was just at the World Economic Forum uh, where India is in and China is out, uh, way more attention being paid to India and Indian representation all over uh, the, the show, both at the national and, and the provincial level. Look, one of the most astonishing things to happen in the last two decades has been that India's broken out of what seemed like a trap. Uh, its infrastructure seemed to be uh, mired in the 19th century, uh, and it seemed an unfixable problem, and it has become fixable. In fact, uh, enormous amounts of investment in infrastructure are unlocking the kind of productivity that John uh, was talking about. Of course, India is still a long way behind but I reminded some Indian journalists that it was back in around about 2008 that I gave a talk in uh, India saying that I thought it was like Aesop's uh, race between the tortoise and the hare. Uh, and although it looked like the tortoise was India and the hare was China, actually the tortoise would win the race. And not just because of demographics, also because India has fundamentally something more like the rule of law and something a lot more like democracy than China has. Right. And this greater level of freedom means that entrepreneurship uh, in India uh, is, is much easier to unleash. You just had to break through this uh, infrastructure logjam and replace uh, dirt tracks with elephants, with highways. So I'm, I'm an optimist about India, but I was an optimist about India before it was fashionable at Davos. Mm -hmm. Adria? Well, you know, India has been described as being schizophrenic in terms of its approach to foreign policy, schizophrenic between you know, fear of abandonment and also fear of being entangled uh, into conflicts that, they, that are not in India's interest. And, and I think you've seen that at play, you know, and we kind of reinforced the fear of abandonment when we left Afghanistan the way that we did in, uh, in, in a way that was despicable. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, when India looked over its shoulder, who's got our back here? In South Asia, well, it wasn't us, and the only power they could hedge with was was Russia. Uh, so I, I think, though, that the, if there's an anti you know psychotic to to the schizophrenia, it's China, you know, and and China's aggression. And I think India realizes that its long term interests align with ours. You've seen Indian ships, for example, cooperating uh, with our naval forces in the Bab el Mandeb uh, and in the Persian Gulf. So I, I think that the trend's in the right direction. India has huge problems still, despite the gains that, that Neil has discussed. And I think it's in the whole world's interest that India succeed. And I think that ought to be a major project of the US, the EU, the UK, and Japan to continue investments in India to help make sure India succeeds. But India has to do its part too, you know, and it's one of the most protectionist nations in the world. It has to, it has to make it easier to do business in India, and it has to, it has to reduce the barriers to, to uh 
to trade and investment in the country. Let me add what you guys are uh, have been highlighting in other places. India lives in a dangerous part of the world. Look, look at the map. They got China to their north nibbling away. They got Pakistan up there. who's not great friends. They're right near Iran, Afghanistan, on, uh, you know, unpleasant part of the world to live in. And if the U.S. is going to give up on Ukraine and the U.S. is going to basically give up on Israel and the U.S. is going to uh, and if China is, gets to swallow the South China Sea and then if China gets to swallow Taiwan, India has got to cut a deal. <laughs> uh, you know, they have they have to live there. And if it, this is part of the danger of, of we're right at the moment. How many wars can you lose? And uh, do people give up on America and cut cut a deal with very unpleasant characters? Okay, we received lots of individual questions for you guys, and so I'll ask a question to each of you and just have each of you answer it rather than do the group so we can- Oh, wait a minute. That's against the rules there, Bill. (laughs) Uh, Let's begin with you, HR. We had a question from Nicholas in Virginia who writes, which branch of the U.S. military will be the most critical over the next several years? Well, it's always the Army. (laughs) I I know it's predictable. Better heart. (laughs) I've just got to tell you, you wars happen on land because that's where people live. And and the threats that- that you experience in the other fluid domains of the maritime and the aerospace and cyberspace and space domains originate where? Like on land. And mm-hmm. so it, it's immensely important though to have a whole range of joint capabilities, right? The, the, no service is capable on its own. It's how you combine them to affect you know, outcomes on land where people live. So I would have to say the army, you know, I'm a, I'm a, in the debates between Corbett and Mahan, I'm on the Corbett side you know, who said that the Navy is important because of what the Navy allows the Army to do on land. HR, we also have a question from Matt in Quantico, Virginia, who writes, I'm a Marine officer who served in the evacuation of Kabul in August 2021. I've appreciated HR's perspective on the war in Afghanistan more than any leader I've heard discuss the conflict. My question, do we need to update America's national security structure? Our current structure often leads to operational and tactical success, but seems to fail to deliver strategic success. Gosh, well, uh, you know, first of all, thanks for your extraordinary service under the most difficult conditions. And and I, you know, I, I don't think we need a change in the structure as much as we need a change in mentality, you know, mm-hmm. and a determination to win and, and a recognition that winning, again, requires consolidating military gains to get the sustainable political outcomes that bring you into the fight to begin with. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, what we're seeing play out again uh, in, in Ukraine is what we see playing out. Uh, in in Gaza. Uh, And and so I just think we need a change in mentality and we maybe need a change in education. We need to bring back diplomatic history and military history. Too many people who make these decisions on policy and strategy involving war have been educated in social science theories. And as a result, I think when they get in the job, they try to fit the real world into their theoretical construct. So I think it's mentality and education, even more than organizational structure. HR, let me let me ask a question on this one, because the, the question you're asked is whether we need to change the national security structure. But it seems like the failures of strategic success are failures uh, of politics, failures to win the peace. You, you guys won the war in Iraq beautifully, uh, but then the peace was mishandled. Right. And that's not really part of the national security structure, is it? That's, that's part of our are rather disastrous foreign policy. I, I must admit, I think it's hilarious that our Secretary of State Blinken is out saying, oh, the Israelis need to find good Palestinian partners to hold elections and be, oh yeah, great. How could, how'd you guys do in Afghanistan and Iraq on that one, buddy? 
Right. Yeah. It's, I think it's it, it, exactly. It's, it's not just a, a flawed process, right? It's, it's the people involved in the, in the process and the assumptions they carry in with them. You know, I mean, this is, this was, this is in large part measure, a, a, a result of taking a short-term approach to long-term problems in places like Afghanistan and in Iraq. And remember, it was that short war, war mentality that we were all about in 2001 in Afghanistan and 2003 in Iraq. But again, this consolidation of gains has never been an optional phase in war, right? This is what Nadia Shadlow, one of our colleagues here at Hoover, calls American denial syndrome in her book, War in the Art of Governance. And I, I think that uh, we're about to repeat it, right? I mean, again, you know, we're we're flushing all the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan right now as deciding, oh, we're we're just never going to do that again. Hey, you know, we saw that before after Vietnam, right? That was part of the Vietnam syndrome. We're never going to fight a war like that again. And then Desert Storm confirmed it, right, for us. We had a, we had an overwhelming victory, but we forgot that we had a very narrowly circumscribed objective. Hey, give Kuwait back to the Kuwaitis, which is which is far less ambitious than than replace. Saddam Hussein or or replace the Taliban in Afghanistan. Okay. John, two questions for you. First, Jeff in Houston, Texas writes, Dr. Cochran, you said that you believe that 4% annual economic growth in the U.S. is possible. Would you please elaborate on what changes you think would need to be implemented to achieve that? Yeah. This is the lightning round, right? 30 seconds or less. <laughs> Let's just import the Javier Millet plan for Argentina to the U.S. Just get the heck out of the way. Okay, which leads nicely to the next question, which is from Rock or Roca, Slovenia. I apologize for getting if I butchered your name, sir. A question for Dr. Cochran. When can we expect the policies of Argentinian President Malay to take effect? If his policies do make a substantial impact for better, can we expect other countries to implement pro-market shock therapy? Incredible show keeps you elevated above the noise level. John? Uh, well, now you're asking me to speculate about um, Argentinian politics, uh, which is, you know, the, the guy is... Um, elected president, but he's he got a Congress that's, uh, he doesn't have a majority in the Congress. He has a judicial system. The forces against him are only beginning to marshal. Um, so good luck to, I, I can't tell when it's worse. I can tell you from an economic point of view, things like this work when people believe they're going to stick. Uh, and um, the problem, of course, is, is it going to stick? So it doesn't work until it believes it's going to stick, and it doesn't stick until people believe it's going to work. Uh, and that's the difficult political part of putting in these kinds of economic reforms. I have great hope because I, I think Argentinians see, you know, back to the old way of doing things is just going to go back to the old way of doing things. But um, but good luck to them. Neil, would you like to add anything, uh, especially uh, Malay's appearance at the World Economic Forum? Yeah. Well, I was present uh, for that speech, which was magnificent uh, it, in its way. But of course, as he well knew, was calculated to affront a great many participants uh, particularly representatives of what might be called woke capitalism. Uh, this was a, a, an extraordinary speech worth uh, listening to or reading in that Malay lumped together uh, with socialists, Keynesians, even uh, neoclassical economists, uh, feminists. Uh, the list went on and implicitly, of course, uh, globalists, uh, the kind of people who go to Davos. So uh, he certainly wasn't looking for a standing ovation. Uh, it was a kind of calculated provocation. I think the key question, uh, and this is based on our good friend Tom Sargent's uh, work, is can you bring about a regime change in almost every domain of policy, uh, deregulation, fiscal, and ultimately monetary, uh, and, and retain 
the support of the people through what will undoubtedly be very tough times. Just the fiscal contraction that's going to happen this year is going to have all kinds of knock-on effects. Uh, there was a general strike. Uh, I'm told it wasn't such a big uh, disruption as the unions had hoped, but of course there will be more opposition. So I think the answer to the question is that there won't be very clear benefits until probably more than a year from now. And in the short run, there'll be quite a lot of pain. Uh, and the, the key question is, can he keep a grip on social order in a place like Argentina through the pain to get to the outs to the other side and the higher growth that, I, that I'm sure would come about if he's just given a chance to let these policies succeed? Let me make a, a plea for shock therapy, because the conventional wisdom, certainly among policy wonkers uh, like us in Davos, is, oh, you have to sequence things carefully and do this, that, and the other thing. Anything you put off is something you're renegotiating. <laughs> when you do everything at once that says is not renegotiable. So yes, in principle, it'd be nice to have a, yes, a sequence, we'll do this, we'll open up this, and then a year later, we'll open up that. But anything you put off that says this is renegotiable. What you want is everybody in. You're going to use yours. You're going to lose yours. You're going to lose yours. But I want you as allies to make sure everybody else loses their special benefit and we all do well together, as opposed to going after them one at a time when each of them has, our, has the incentive to fight. So uh, I, I'm, I'm for shock therapy for that. Yeah, and I, I want to be clear. So am I. And, and in yes. these circumstances with inflation sort of up towards 200%, you really actually have to do drastic things. And the mistake that an, a previous President uh, uh, Mauricio Macri made was to go too slowly. You've really got 100 days to do the painful stuff, more or less. And so he's right to try and do that. And I think the bonfire of regulations is a really good part of this because it's a supply side uh, solution as well as, of course, the the fiscal contraction, which is is bound to be uh, painful. So, I, you know, I I don't want to uh, overestimate his chances. It's Argentina, after all. Its political economy is highly resistant to reform. But this is the right approach. And the reason I mentioned Tom Sargent is that his great paper from the early 80s, The Ends of Four Big Inflations, says exactly what John just said. You have to do it all at once in what Sargent called a regime change. That's what Malay's doing. And I think the good fellows wish him luck. But it has, it has to be durable to work. But it is there's good signs. It's already working. So removing uh, rent controls in uh, Buenos Aires has led to a 20% decline in rents already. Why? Because removing rent controls has led people to flood the uh, market with apartments that were taken off the market. So, you know, already something's working. I have three questions for Dr. Ferguson. Neil, the first comes from Christopher in Chico, California. He writes, Neil, in the pity of war, your thesis is that Britain ought to have stayed out in 1914. What scenario worries you the most should the U.S. do the opposite, staying out when it should be involved? Well, I think uh, the United States was right not to directly intervene in Ukraine, though there were some who argued that it, it should. I think that wasn't necessary, but I think it would be very wrong for the United States to cease its support for Ukraine, which it has. Uh, and, and that's an indefensible thing, uh, which has only really arisen because of the antics of uh, representatives in the in the House. Uh, I think if uh, there were to be a move against Taiwan, suppose uh, China did impose a blockade and try to assert its authority over Taiwan, then it would be a great mistake for the United States to do nothing. The problem is that doing something, and the obvious something would be to send a naval expeditionary force to break the blockade, would be extremely risky. And there would be lots of talk of World War III uh, in the in the press. 
one of the things that's striking about President Biden is that he doesn't like to escalate. This is a favorite word of the administration. Well, a Ukrainian, a senior Ukrainian official said to me at Davos, nothing has done us more harm than this reluctance to escalate a President Biden. Uh, so in some ways, I think the United States uh, is, is intervening uh, a little uh, in certain uh, conflicts in, in Ukraine and in the Middle East, not enough to make a decisive difference. And, and that can be the worst possible combination. Well, John mentioned Pakistan a minute ago in our conversation about India. And indeed, Neil, we have a question from Badr, who's in Islamabad, Pakistan. He writes, hi, Neil. I wanted to get your thoughts on how the deteriorating situation in Pakistan, both politically and economically, can impact not only South Asia, but the neighboring Middle East. Will this be a topic of discussion in the U.S. presidential election? Badr, it will not be a topic of discussion in the U.S. <laughs> presidential election. Indeed, you won't really hear much about any foreign country uh, in the coming months. Uh, except, I suppose, occasionally when uh, Republican uh, candidates, or should I say candidate singular, uh, disparage the Biden administration's foreign policy. I think the situation in Pakistan is, is, uh, is extremely fraught. And one has to wonder at what point does this boil over and put Pakistan back on the front pages? Uh, Right now, uh, it seems to me we're in a situation in which Iran is the center of attention and Iranian proxies are now, uh, are now so em emboldened uh, that, in fact, uh, there are even attacks on Pakistani uh, territory, an extraordinary state of affairs. Uh, so the sideshow at the moment is really Pakistan. The, the real show is in Iran. And as long as Iran doesn't feel deterred, its proxies will wreak havoc uh, in, uh, in all directions. Dr. Ferguson, one last question for you. It comes from Matt in Denver, Colorado, who writes, Neil, I once had the pleasure of meeting you in person and I discovered that you are the single most artful user of cuss words of anyone I know. Would you be willing to cuss more on podcasts? Well, certainly not. Uh, my my uh, mother would almost certainly never speak to me again if I, I were to swear on Goodfellas or in any public place. And there's a really important rule that I have here. Uh, when in bars, uh, having uh, a few drinks with congenial company, I may lapse into profanity. Uh, after all, I did grow up in Glasgow. And uh, the more Glaswegian you are, the more you swear. It's kind of one of those distinguishing features of our species. But but that's that's bars. Uh, when you're on air uh, or speaking in public, you really shouldn't swear. Uh, and, and that's because we don't want to pollute and, and, and drag down the standards of public discourse. In our family, I explain this to all my children, that there is a clear rule. If you are hammering a nail into a wall and you hammer your thumb by mistake, you are allowed to curse. Uh, but it should not be a routine part of your conversation. If you do, Neil, we, we want it in a, in a good, thick Scottish accent. You'll just have to use your imagination, John, or buy me a couple of drinks. I'm looking forward to that. J John, are economists a pretty profane lot? No. No. <laughs> HR, there's no no swearing in the military, right? HR, <laughs> yeah, of course, of course not. No, I, I mean, some I've known some people who have really elevated it to to a, a form of art, actually. No bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it 
by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. <laughs> but but I do I do agree that you should use it sparingly. The Scottish squaddy, the uh, the Scottish grunt, to use the American term, I think has the greatest skill in deployment of profanity, and and I've I've heard uh, extraordinary soliloquies in which almost every second word was a curse word. And it has a certain poetry to it, but uh, I don't think it's suitable for a, for a family show like Goodfellas. After all, we're good fellows. And in, in, yes, in military and drinking context, yes. But in general, I think we should all elevate the quality of um, public discourse. I'm not just the profanity. Um, I, I had to tune off the Republican debates because I can't stand watching adults interrupt and talk over each other. Come, come, come now. Lincoln and Douglas didn't do this. Uh, this, you know, be serious when you're in public. Okay, guys, let's go back to group questions. Here's one from Thomas at St. Andrews, Scotland, Neil. He writes, do the Goodfellows believe the argument that the defense of Taiwan runs through Ukraine? Does continued U.S. support for Ukraine undermine Taiwan's defense as American military stockpiles are redirected to Kiev instead of Taipei? HR, why don't you take that? No, it doesn't, actually. In fact, the the uh, the items that are on back order, essentially, the $19 billion of backlogged sales to Taiwan are, are, are not the same items, not the same weapons and munitions that Ukraine uh, really needs desperately at, at the moment. So it doesn't. But also, I think the war in Ukraine has been beneficial in terms of long-term readiness and maybe re restoring deterrence that Neil said it quite rightly, I think, has, has dissipated uh, because it has awakened us to the need for additional industrial capacity. You just saw in, in this week that, uh, that, that, the, that the NATO Secretary General announced a $1.1 billion long-term contract for procuring artillery shells, for example. And that's what we really need to get our industrial base back, what John talked about is a lack of an industrial base and shipbuilding, but that applies to everything really, are our long-term predictable contracts because you know none of our defense firms are charities or philanthropic organizations. What they what they need is, is a really sustained long-term demand signal so we can build back the 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 uh, you know the the industrial capacity that we've lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Continuing resolutions in the budget doesn't let you buy weapons right. on a five-year schedule, which is what they need to be. But just to crystallize the difference, uh, you need the capacity and the will to use it. Uh, and the idea that we're using up weapons in, in Kiev instead of Taipei is a capacity issue. But the question in the Chinese mind is the will to use it issue. And we, if we won't send even Ukrainians the stuff they need because we're worried about escalating, goodness gracious, we're not going to us fight in, uh, in near Taiwan when they'd be shooting at us out of fear of de-escalation. So the question is, is, is not the capacity. The question is the will. Neil, anything you'd like to quickly add? Well, this conversation, uh, this topic came up uh in Switzerland last week. And it's extremely important, obviously, from the Ukrainian perspective, uh, that uh, aid be restored, which it needs to be urgently. And of course, that it not be discontinued if uh, uh, Donald Trump is re-elected uh, president. And one of the key points that was made to me by a senior Ukrainian official was that people in the US have to understand that these are not entirely discrete conflicts, that what is happening in Ukraine, what is happening in the Middle East, and what is happening in the Far East are intertwined. Because as we've discussed on Goodfellas many times, China, Russia, Iran, and now North Korea are acting increasingly in concert. 
the only re reason Russia is is now able uh, to uh, exceed Ukraine in firepower is the vast amounts uh, of dual-use equipment coming to uh, Russia from China. Yes. Uh, and so it's very important to understand that a Russian victory over Ukraine would be a victory for China, uh, as well as, of course, being uh, a defeat for the West. It, we have to take a little breather and make fun of Neil for going to Davos. I hope you went on a private jet, because, of course, to go to Davos and worry about inequality and climate change, you have to fly in on a private jet and worry about exactly which badge you have to show you. Actually, I, I, I went by train, John, just to be Good clear. for you. I'm a man of the people. Uh, and if, <laughs> if Javier Malay can go to Davos to tell the global elite what's what, then so can I. Yes. Neil, did everybody light a candle when John Kerry gave his farewell speech or... I, I'm afraid I wasn't able to attend that for some oh, reason. Oh no! I must. No, hey, a, fr a friend of a friend of mine w was there for both uh, Kerry and and uh, and Al Gore's talks, and said that the atmosphere in the room was one of just astonishment at how disconnected they are from reality, and uh, especially in the area of energy security, where they they seem to be content, you know, to to shut down U.S. natural gas exports, LNG exports. Uh, as as Iran, for example, is building more LNG export terminals. I mean, it's just ludicrous. Right. Uh, so John Kerry is stepping down as climate czar, and he's going to campaign for the uh, Biden reelect. We received a lot of questions about the presidential election. Let me uh, pose two to you guys. First, we have a question from Jeff in Melbourne, Australia, who writes, if Trump is elected president for a second term, then his apparent driving objective to date would seem to have been achieved. His second term will surely be driven by different objectives from the first given term limits. What do good fellows think will be his objectives? And if you guys don't want to try to read Donald Trump's mind, maybe you can edit that by saying what should be his objectives. Well, we know a bit about this because uh, there's a think tank, or a couple of think tanks, America First and Heritage, that are working on it and publishing at least some of what it is they have in mind. And, and so this is not uh, non-public information. Clearly, a major priority is going to be to, uh, I hesitate to use the word, but let's use it, purge the federal bureaucracy of elements that they regard as hostile to President Trump. Uh, and that won't leave terribly much of the Department of Justice left if they if they do it rigorously. So I think that will be a, a priority. Uh, Donald Trump is a score-settling type, and he has a lot of scores to settle. Uh, so this will be very, very different if it happens from 2017. In 2017, the Trump people hadn't really expected to win. They had to improvise a government. And in fact, it was in many ways a government uh, made up of uh, Republican establishment figures and uh, people from the military with great credibility, such as our good friend and colleague here, uh, General McMaster, it won't be like that this time around. If there is a second Trump administration, you won't see a general. Uh, I guess Michael Flynn might be the one exception. Uh, and what you will see is a great focus uh, on the federal uh, bureaucracy. Now, some might say, perhaps I'm one of them, that the federal bureaucracy could do with downsizing. And it could also do with depoliticization, uh, because there's no question that in almost every department, of the federal government, there's a huge bias towards the Democrats. So it's hard, it's going to be hard to argue against that, even if Trump's motives are primarily score settling. So that that's, I think, the first thing I would say. The second thing is that the foreign policy implications are not as obvious as people think. Uh, as I said, the Ukrainians don't necessarily fear a Trump uh, return, because in many ways, Biden has not been great for them. And, I, and it's not obvious to me that Trump would necessarily throw Zelensky under a bus. 
secondly, I think the Middle East will welcome uh, Trump's return uh, because the Gulf states uh, and, of course, the Israelis have not uh, greatly benefited from the Biden administration. And a return to the uh, Middle East policies of the Trump administration would be welcome everywhere but in Tehran. Uh, as for the other members of the axis of ill will, they'll just not be sure what to expect because Trump has been so unpredictable in the past with respect to both Taiwan, China uh, and uh, and North Korea. On the Taiwan issue, he gave an interview with Maria Bartiromo the other day in which he complained that Taiwan had stolen our semiconductor business. Taiwan took, smart, brilliant. They took our business away. We should have stopped them. We should have taxed them. We should have tariffed them. That can't be very reassuring for Taipei. John? I would add um, uh, a, a second what uh, Neil said about the bureaucracies, which is one of the central issues. You know, why are people supporting Trump? Well, we'll get to this question, I think, in some deeper issue. But the sense that uh, the arms of the federal government have been taken over by um by, uh, by Democratic partisans as part of it. But when you think about what's going to happen after the next election, the conventional, well, what is Trump's three-point policy plan for strengthening NATO alliances? And what's Trump's five-point energy plan for reinvigorating natural gas? Just put that aside. The day after the election, I'm getting out of town. If Trump wins this election, there, you know, 2020 protests are going to be nothing. There are going to be riots in the streets. If Trump tries to fire half of the FBI, bing, everyone's in court instantly. There's going to be a, a legal nightmare the entire time. So uh, Trump's, what the, the, I think the theme of the next Trump um, election is going to be near near civil war, not, a, not at the point of war, but, um, but uh, riots in the streets and then a legal battle, unending legal battles, unending pitched legal battles, his, his his opposition is already saying he's illegitimate. And of course, if Biden wins, Trump's line is going to be he's illegitimate. And exactly the kind of battles that you do when both sides have said the end of democracy is at hand. Uh, the, uh, the usurper is illegitimate. And look what he's trying to do, firing all the good people at the Department of Justice. It's, it's going to be judicial chaos. So he may have intentions about what he wants to do. And, and I salute people who are trying to give him some sort of coherent policy. I don't think raising tariffs 10% everywhere is a good one. But um, I, I think the thing to look forward to is, is events, my dear boy, as Neil used to remind us. And those events are going to be a pitched battle. HR, you've been there, you've done that, and you're writing a book about it. What, what do you think 2025 would look like if he got reelected? Well, you know, as, as we're talking about, there, there's a lot in Washington that needs to be disrupted. But the sad part of this story is if Trump's reelected, he's so disruptive that he disrupts himself. And, and he's so inconsistent in his views. You know, I mean, what, what he wants to achieve overall oftentimes is, is really is the right thing, right? How about reciprocity in, in, in market access and in and, and, and trade broadly? Yeah, sure. How about burn sharing? Yes, right? I mean, these, these, are, these are all uh, good objectives, but the way he goes about it, he actually undercuts what he's trying to achieve overall. So the question is, you know, will there be people around him, you know, who will help him clarify his agenda Right. Not put words in his mouth or try to change the behavior, but, but help him clarify his agenda and then propose, you know, the, the three point plans that John's talking about so he can accomplish objectives for the American people. You know, and and I just don't know who's going to want to serve uh, because it, he's just so difficult to serve. You know, I mean, I, I you know, <laughs> I want any president to succeed, but man, he just can't get out of his own way. 
you know, and 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 so I'm that's what I'm concerned about is the ineffectiveness um, uh, because of the kind of dissonance that he has on these on the most important issues and what he wants to achieve. And and then also, as John said, you know, what do we do to ourselves uh, because of how polarizing a figure he is? So, of course, my preference would be, you know, would be somebody uh, who can get to the politics of addition and bring Americans together. Uh, around a clear agenda we can all agree on, or, or at least you know the majority of us can can agree on. I have a lot more presidential uh, questions. Sorry, uh, HR, is that your uh, statement for the No Labels campaign? Well, you know, <laughs> you know, again, I'm trying not to like explicitly endorse people because of you know the military thing and everything else, but man, I do love Nikki Haley. She was great to work with, you know, and and she's a great leader, and you know, she's a rational human being, and. And uh, she's effective, you know. I so I, I mean, I, the HR I and she and she has she has a broader appeal, right? She has a broader appeal. So so I, anyway, somebody, how about somebody like that? <laughs> I have a lot more presidential related questions, but you know what? We're going to have about nine and a half months, I think, to discuss this election, given what happened in New Hampshire last night. So let's move on to the lightning round. Lightning round. We have two questions for you today. The first comes from Andrew in San Rafael, California. He writes, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken plays a pretty mean guitar and sings. I've seen various instruments in the show background and wondered if there was any chance of a Goodfellows blues band gracing us anytime soon. Neil? Having to get my double bass out. Uh, blues is an easy thing to play uh, badly. Hard to play well. Don't know about the other guys. What you got? I'll get my acoustic guitar out, uh, but uh, I, I'm afraid there's a slight difference in musical taste. We've already had the the Beatles versus uh, Rolling Stones fight, and when I start doing my James Taylor numbers, I think the two of you guys are just going to retch. H.R. <laughs> McMaster, are you musically inclined? Oh man, I, I'm I'm a music enthusiast and just completely you know lacking in talent. So I guess that leaves me with the tambourine. You'll you fit know. right in. <laughs> Lead singer. I think the answer is we ought to think of it like the Partridge family and go into your extended families and see what wives, what sons, what daughters, what relatives had musical taste. Maybe get a psychedelic bus and hit the road. The question is, Bill, what will you play? What will I play? Uh, HR took the tambourine. That was a problem. So triangle. Cowbell. More oh. cowbell. I'll drum. I, I have to. I basically have to be a drummer on their show as a timekeeper. I'll drum. How sad. <laughs> One last lightning round question, gentlemen. Thomas from New Hampshire. He writes, "What are you reading? What books should be essential reads for the next generation coming through school?" Asking as a teacher, Neil, what are you reading, and what should be Tolstoy. essential reads? Tolstoy. Tolstoy. I'm reading Tolstoy's short stories and many early ones that I hadn't read, including yeah. HR. Some extraordinary military stories. Oh, hey, I love them. I took that. I took those to, with me to Desert Storm and yeah. read. All of those in the desert before we Aren't attacked in Iraq. Absolutely they're phenomenal. They're so great. So if you're not quite ready for War and Peace, which I admit is a challenge, though I love that book, the, the Tolstoy short stories, War in the Caucasus, uh, the Crimean, uh, Sebastopol. Is it the tree felling uh, or the wood felling? Is that one of them? And then Sebastopol sketches. I mean, they're phenomenal. Sebastopol sketches is absolutely an unforgettable yeah. account. And uh, so, yeah, that's my recommendation. And quickly, Neil, one essential read. One essential read? Well, War and Peace is the essential read. I don't think anybody who hasn't read War and Peace is truly educated. John, what are you reading these days? Well, things that I would definitely not recommend to our readers, uh, mathematical models of uh, price dynamics in uh, New Keynesian uh, economics. Uh, wait, wait for the movie. Inflation works. Don't read that. <laughs> 
But, you know, given the, the tragedy of our schools, um, I, I don't know exactly which titles, but just sort of basics of Western history that you used to have to, you know, learn to get through school is something that's kind of shockingly absent. So um, uh, I, I guess I'll defer on the titles to Neil, uh, but th those are the essential reads that have always been the essential reads. Who are you? Where do you come from? And HR, what are you reading other than galleys of your NSC book? <laughs> I'll tell you, it's all right here, man. I mean, there it is. If everybody wants a sneak preview, you know, here are some of the latest edits. But hey, I, I just got to say, um, you're I'm reading a lot about presidential leadership because really, I want the book to be able to place, you know, to, you know President Trump in a broader context. So uh, I'm reading like uh, Alexander George, you know, who was a phenomenal professor here at Stanford. Uh, he passed about a decade ago, and just a wonderful human being. But his work on presidential character, um, and and others, Fred Greenstein, for example. So I'm reading about about the the modern presidents and 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 what is presidential character and trying to distill that down uh, to three or four different qualities that I think are important for any president to have. And so uh, that's what that's what I'm reading at the moment. And one essential read. Gosh, you know, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll think you know because we we are we are so uh, you know affected by the polarization of our society. I think any works on the founding or the revolution and. And I'd like to put in a plug for Don Higginbotham's War of American Independence, the best one-volume history of the revolution. And and again, talk about a phenomenal human being. That guy was just a wonderful historian and a wonderful and a wonderful person. Hey, well, gentlemen, thank you very much for answering questions. Uh, and thank you very much, our loyal viewers, for sending in the questions. Please, please, please doing it because we're going to continue in future lightning rounds to put viewer questions in. And again, send your questions to hoover.org forward slash askgoodfellows and we'll get to them. On behalf of my colleagues, the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution. Hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, take care. And again, thanks for watching. Brothers and sisters are natural enemies, like Englishmen and Scots, or Welshmen and Scots, or Japanese and Scots, or Scots and other Scots. Damn Scots! They ruined Scotland! You Scots sure are a contentious people. You just made an enemy for life!